Today, we're covering a lot of ground, and I have to start with a confession. I told you we weren't going to read all the scripture, but I lied. We are. Okay, we're going to read every part of it. And so, just buckle up, and like, get your coffee, and I will give you a break to, like, take a deep breath, because we literally are swimming in the deep end. We don't even have time to, like, tiptoe in. We just all have to, like, jump off the diving board. So, there's a lot here, and it's beautiful, and it's, let me start my timer. Uh, I'm going to need that. So last night, um, Alyssa did a great job of setting up Exodus, and we have this great foundation that is in our brains, including the themes. And so I want to review the main theme. Um, It's written in the front of your notebook, so you can follow along for this first part. The theme is the fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs that he would make their descendants a great nation. And we saw that this was carried out despite the opposition of the greatest superpower in the ancient world at that time, Egypt. This was carried out also despite the unbelief and disobedience of the people themselves. That fact alone is so encouraging. I want to bring our hearts um, to another sub-theme of this section that I pulled out from my study Bible, that the success of the Exodus must be ascribed first to the power and character of God, who... One, remembers his promises. Two, punishes sin. And three, forgives the penitent. So we're going to refer back to those. I'll probably hold up a finger as I'm going through. It's not like some big orderly thing. I just point it out as we're going through. Like, look, he's remembering his promises. Look, he's punishing sin. Um, Look, this person is not repentant. This person is. So I like definitions of words that are kind of wonky and we don't use a lot, even though I think I might start using penitent when I talk to my children. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. But we all need that reminder in the moment, including myself. Like, let's can we repent real quick? Um, so penitent is the feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done wrong. It is being repentant. So the feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done wrong. So let's take a quick look at where we're going. In Exodus 5, we're going to see the initial encounter that Aaron and Moses have been building up to. It's kind of a small request at first um, compared to just the contest that they'll have with um, Pharaoh through um, the plagues. But before we go forward, there's this little word afterward that starts chapter 5 in Exodus and that is really important. Like Jen Wilkin teaches us to look for these words, these um, what you like to call transitional words in a narrative. And so why it's there is that it's telling us that it's introducing a new episode in our narrative, but it's directly related to the episode that came before or that was just told. So let's look back briefly from what we learned last night. In Exodus 3, 9 through 12, we saw the call of Moses. We saw that when Moses met with Yahweh in the burning bush, he immediately questioned his own identity. Who am I? And then God immediately promises to be with him when he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And my Bible study note by Kenneth Harris, he's the commentator on Exodus for the ESV study Bible. He says that when the Old Testament says that God is with someone, it stresses God's power that enables the person to carry out his calling. 
So when God is with someone, it stresses God's power that enables the person to carry out his calling. And this is kind of a common phrase that if you grew up in the church, you might have heard, God equips whom he calls. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips those whom he calls. And we see this happening in Moses' life. Another place, it's kind of wonky, but I want to look there, is Exodus 4. The part I'm drawing out is verse 16 and 17. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Kenneth Harris also notes that when God says that Moses shall be as a God to Aaron, he is calling both of these men to faithfulness in their respective roles of relating what he reveals. And so I want us to kind of think back to Moses' upbringing that Alyssa walked us through, because in his note, he says from his upbringing, Moses was likely already familiar with someone being the mouth of another person. Because a historical note here is that in ancient Egypt, there was a high official called the mouth of the king, whose job was to mediate between the god Pharaoh and the people of Egypt by speaking Pharaoh's words unaltered to the people. So this was like a thing that they saw common in Pharaoh's courts. And so this is the culture in which we find the Hebrew people and the Egyptian people under Pharaoh's rule. This is, this is who Moses and Aaron are going to speak to. Now that we have our minds on where we're coming from, remembering he was nervous, he did not want to fully embrace his call at first, but he was still obedient. Let's take a look at the next phase in our narrative. So now we're jumping into the scripture and we're gonna read every word of it. So afterwards, Moses and Aaron, we're in 5.1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. I promise I won't stop after every verse, but five and six, we're gonna really dissect. Moses and Aaron went, indicates that they were granted access to Pharaoh's courts, right? They literally went in to his holy courts, or not holy, royal, not holy. <laughs> Pharaoh, <laughs> write that down, or scratch out, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. They spoke boldly. They made a request. They feared the Lord and not man. But as a result of their obedience to God, the situation got worse. They were accused of being idle and of lying. So let's pull out one of the words here before we dig in further to see what happened to them. Thus says the Lord. This is a statement of authority. We're going to see it a lot through the plagues, through this whole section. It became, sorry, it's a, excuse me. It's a statement of authority, and the form of the phrase was used in the ancient Near East. So you'll see in 510 that Pharaoh actually says, thus says Pharaoh. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord, but he says, thus says Pharaoh. And so in that moment when he says, thus says Pharaoh, he's implicating himself to carry out what he's saying. Okay, but for the Hebrew prophets, when they hear, thus says the Lord, this became a standard reminder to both the messenger and the recipient that the words came from and would be acted upon by the Lord. So what's our sub-theme? He is a God who keeps his promises. So God sees and he acts. This is the God that Alyssa introduced us to last night in our sections one through four. The next part that is highlighted here is they've gone in to make a request. And what's their request? Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So that's one of those phrases that you're like, okay, a feast in the wilderness, I get it. They're like eating in the woods. But you don't, don't 
describe me as basically a but no there there's a little more there so when it says that you kind of want to think it suggests a religious pilgrimage to a place where a feast will be to honor their god so think obedience worship they've gone there because their god told them to they're obeying they want to obey him and they are specifically doing what he said it's a religious pilgrimage all right, jumping back in, Exodus 5, 2. But Pharaoh said, how did he respond to this request? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So here we see clearly that Pharaoh does not know the Lord personally. He says it. Um, another historical note for this setting is that it was a time when different people worshipped various gods. There's so many little g-gods in Egypt. And knowing the personal names of those gods, they had names, um, was necessary in order to call on their power. So he's saying, like, I don't know your God. He's not calling on his power. And his response of, I do not know the Lord, actually becomes a theme throughout mm -hmm. the plagues to signify what they are for. They are so that you may know that I am the Lord mm -hmm. or to show you who Yahweh is. Again, God speaks and he acts. He wants us to see that. In a commentary on Exodus, Dr. Alan Cole, a seminary professor who we had, mentions that the God who speaks, he is a God who delights to declare his own nature. And we see this when he reveals the name Yahweh in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. This is when we first see him delighting to declare that nature. But that's just the beginning as he wants to do that to more than just Moses. So the no here, if you think back to last night in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, is I'm going to read the verse first. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So what kind of knowing are we talking about when we say knowing Yahweh, knowing the Lord? First, we're talking about how he knows us, right? He didn't just recognize their suffering and say, oh, I see you mm -hmm. and just stay in heaven mm -hmm. or just withdraw from it even, right? He didn't just glance over and note it, right? But more than that, it, he knew Israel's suffering. It is the inclination or posture of the knower in relation to what is known. God sees and he acts. Again, study note, an exodus from Harris reminds us that these verses serve as a reminder that the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not be defined by their years of slavery, right? When they're forced to disobey, they could not take a break and go worship their God. They've been forced into this slavery. They're not living the way that God intended them to, and they know it, but they're kind of used to it, right? They've been there a while, but by their covenant so they will not be defined by those years of slavery, but they, but by their covenant relationship with a God who has heard their cries and who saw and knew their affliction and remembered his promises. So now back to Exodus 5, 3. I promise we're going to pick up the pace as we go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. 
So lest he fall upon us, that can be translated, attack us, strike us, punish us. Remember, he is a God who punishes sin. Our second point in our theme. Pestilence refers to a contagious and usually fatal disease and is always used in Exodus to refer to an act of divine punishment. So pestilence here in this verse refers to a contagious and usually fatal disease and is always used in Exodus to refer to an act of divine punishment. Moses and Aaron know this about God. They know that he punishes sin. They're going in on behalf of the Israelites to say, let us go. Let us go and obey our God. Let us go worship him. Okay, but Pharaoh did not heed this warning. So now we're going to jump in and read a lot. We're going to read 5, 4 through 18. So hang with me. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by, by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, there's the thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. We've seen this scattering before. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? The foremen of the people, oh, sorry, pause. Nope, 18, keep going. <laughs> then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So Aaron and Moses have encountered Pharaoh with their initial request. And what happened? It got really bad, really bad. Let's summarize what happened to them and what we just read. They're making bricks. That's already a hard task. I think Chris preached on it about a month ago and was explaining how hard it was to make bricks in Egypt. It's not like going to Lowe's or Home Depot or Menards and like getting a truck full. So they're like making bricks. It's difficult already. But now they're going to stop giving them straw to make the bricks, make them go gather the straw, make as many bricks as before because why? Because they're idle right? They're being accused. You're, you're not doing enough work. Let's get at it. And this is why they're seeking to worship their God, because they have extra time. Urgency among their taskmasters, who are from among them, saying, complete your daily work. Come on, hurry. We got to do this. As before, when there was straw, they're under pressure, guys. I think we can relate. The foremen of the Hebrew people, they were beaten, beaten, physically harmed, 
and attacked for this. And then they went in to make an appeal, but it was not granted. And they realized when they went in that they were in trouble. It's a very discouraging time. So back to 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Again, discouragement. Don't think here that they're doubting and that they're not obeying. They are doubting, they are discouraged, but they're still obeying. It looks grim for deliverance, right? Aaron and Moses were told, this is your job. This is what you're doing. You're going into Pharaoh. When you say it, when you meet with him, the people of Israel are going to be delivered so that they can obey me, so they can worship me. This is not what it looks like is happening. They've gone into to Pharaoh, and now the slavery is heavier. They are more enslaved. So they're extremely discouraged. So does obedience still bring blessing? Are they doubting this? Obedience does bring blessing, but what kind are we looking for? So this is just an honest statement that Moses says next. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to the people. And you have not delivered your people at all. It's okay. It's okay for him to go before a holy God and to be honest. He's not in trouble for saying this. So when we look ahead in chapter 6 and what's to come, they are about to see what the blessing is. Okay? Moses will know God in a deeper way. That is the blessing. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So stop there for just a minute with a strong hand. When we hear this phrase, we should again remember from the sub theme, God keeps his promises, okay? With a strong hand refers to what the Lord will do to bring Israel out of Egypt, not to the manner in which Pharaoh will send them out. So just to be honest, growing up, when I would read this or hear it, and I didn't study it a lot. I feel like this is like one of the first times I've honed in on this passage, honestly. <coughs> but as a kid, when I would hear it, I thought the strong hand was just like Pharaoh, like mistreating them. And like that was the strong hand. Okay. It's kind of both and. It's like Pharaoh is never going to say, okay, Lord, I'll let your people go. But yet he's going to push them out because God is sovereign over his people. It is God who is doing it. So when you hear with a strong hand, remember it refers to what the Lord will do. So let's keep reading. 6-2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, 
and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Whew. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Sorry. <laughs> the repeated declaration of God's presence and identity. I am the Lord. This is the point of the plagues for Israel. The same God Almighty who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has heard the cries of their descendants and remembered his covenant. I'm going to say that fact like so many more times through this because that is the point. Here in 6, 6 through 8, God reaffirms his commitment to his people. I just said them when I was reading, so let's highlight them. Because it reaffirms his commitment and his covenant identity in repeated affirmations. He states three times, he is the Lord, he is the Lord, he is the Lord. Verse 2, 6 and 8. That, that is, he is the God of the covenant who will act in a decisive way on behalf of his people. So let's read them. I will bring you out, verse 6. I will deliver you, verse 6. I will redeem you, verse 6. I will take you to be my people, verse 7. I will bring you into the land, verse 8. I will give it to you for possession. Jen Wilkin notes in her God of Deliverance study, in her um, auditory, or audible part, her hour long, that he is the God who was, he is, and he is to come. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He establishes covenant from generation to generation. So this is who is being revealed through the plagues. Let's pick up at eight. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So in 6, 7, one Bible study note I also want to share with you from Kenneth Harris is that in 6, 7, the part that I read, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is expressing the central idea of Israel's relationship with God. He will bring them into a personal relationship with him, a relationship of great blessing, protection, and joy. So this is the same relationship that we are in with him. When he says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, this phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, you're going to hear it over and over in the place. He's indicating that he will reveal himself to Israel through his acts on their behalf. Even though it's directed at Israel here, it is also a phrase used many times towards Pharaoh, but without the part, your God. It's called the recognition formula, and it is common in Exodus, again, because it's reminding us of the purpose of the plagues. God is not only revealing himself to his people Israel, he is revealing himself to all of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh. So in um, the end of this page, let's go back to 6-9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So we're just going to pause here for a minute and think about what they've come from. 
Pharaoh purposely put pressure on them. He was trying to break them down. He was putting them under this crazy amount of pressure that no one could stand up under. They were already weak because they hadn't been given the opportunity to worship their God and obey him like they wanted to. So just put yourself in that position kind of reminds me a little bit of the pandemic that we just came out of. <laughs> we weren't allowed to gather. We were trying to wonky, like, make it work online. And, like, we missed seeing our people. We missed seeing faces. We missed talking. We missed hugging. All the things that we were used to. And so Jen Wilkin points out a really good phrase that I'm sure she made up. She's amazing. But it's simple, and I want us to remember it. What we repeat in times of ease we will recall in times of hardship. That is where the Israelites find themselves when they say, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, they did not listen, right? They're in hardship now. So what we repeat in times of ease, we will recall in times of hardship. Guys, studying the Bible is good work. Israel has been in a pagan culture where they are not allowed to rest and to worship. God is aware. He is gently leading them out. We have to be women of the word. We will, prior, we will prioritize what the world doesn't make room for. It will feel a lot like the Israelites in Egypt. When we stop to study our Bible, people are going to say, you don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Like we're under this invisible pressure in the pagan culture that we live in. To hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And to what end? It's all vanity. We've got to stop and meet with Yahweh. We have to get our marching orders from him and do what counts for eternity. And so remember the Israelites, when your spirit is broken, go back to the scripture memory that we're practicing in times of ease. Recall that. It will serve you well. Study your Bibles. So the Lord, let me get my fun track. Sorry, it's never good to pause like that, but it is. Okay. (laughs) So the Lord said to Moses, 610, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Sorry, guys. If you could only see my notes, pause one minute. I need my papers in my hand. Okay. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, for I am of uncircumcised lips. That might be like, are we going back there? Like last night? (laughs) We're not. We're going to go to a more familiar place where we hear that. And can anybody just shout it out? Who does it remind you of? Another prophet who said that. Anyone? Yeah, that's right. Isaiah 6, 5. You can hear echoes of Isaiah 6, 5 here. And I'll read that. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We know that we can relate to this, right? Because it's super encouraging that when the Lord reveals himself to us as Yahweh, we are keenly aware of our sin and our inability. I think it's important 
to point out because we can relate to this in our own task of fulfilling the Great Commission. When we know, when we come to know the Lord and we're aware of our sin, our inability to complete the task, we have to remember that it's His presence that goes with us. And we have to place our faith on His ability and the holiness that is imparted to us in Christ. We will end the Exodus um, in 6, but first I want to note here too, because obedience did not have this neat and tidy outcome, it was like kind of messy to them, it was easy to, to doubt, right? And so we come to an abrupt change where we read a genealogy. And it's like, well, why is that there? Let's remember what Alyssa said. Anytime you see a name, it's there for a reason. So we see all these names and we're like, whoa, that's a lot of names. But what's not there is a whole lot of other names. So these names were chosen to be here for a reason. And the genealogy is here for a reason. And the summary, because we don't have time to go into it, and I'm not as good at genealogies as like a Jim Wilkin. But um, the point is that when the obedience looked all messy and they've gone in and they've done what they've said and we've seen the outcome and they're like, okay, this is weird, then they are to be reminded and we are to be reminded as we're reading it that Moses and Aaron are the ones through whom the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. This is God's plan. He is doing his plan. Okay. This is also Aaron's sons who would become the heads of the priestly line in Israel. So there's purpose here. Now, a little weird side note because Megan and I were talking about last night. I went home and studied it <laughs> and does anyone notice anything weird about the genealogy? <laughs> Megan can tell us in a minute if no one else recognizes it. Besides all the names and the, the um, years when they died, there's something else a little bit like, Ooh, in it. Um, is it verse 20? Like, I don't yes. know if I'm reading that wrong. No, no, no. no you're not reading okay. it wrong. You're not reading it wrong. But That's just right. to encourage everyone. Okay, the weird part, to catch us all up, is that Moses and Aaron's dad married his aunt. That is their mom, okay? And that's kind of like, oh, but like you guys are like obeying and like you're like doing the thing for the Lord and that's the line you come from and like I don't understand. Like are, are they allowed to do that? We're not allowed to do that. Um, so look at it this way. The Levitical law has not come yet. It comes in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so we're back in the time similar to Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve's children would have married their brothers and sisters because that is who was there to marry. And so it's a different time, way different time than now. We don't have to do that anymore. We have lots of people to choose from. So just keep that in your mind. And when... Now, if everyone wants to just take a deep breath and like drink your coffee, we finally made it to the plague narratives. And we're going to like get out of the pool and like get a snack real quick and then like jump back in the deep end. So go with me. It's going to be really good. We've set it up. Let's go learn about it. All right. A cool thing that scripture God has done is that the plagues come in three cycles. You can kind of see that on that really fancy chart that I printed out for you. And you don't have to study that, but as we talk about the cycles, when you look at that chart, it will stand out in your mind a little more, hopefully at the end, as it did for me after studying it. 
I'll be honest with you, I did not know anything about the three cycles before I studied it. I just knew there were 10 plagues. And so this was really cool to learn. Jen notes that, Jen Wilkin notes that the repetition, I wish I was like, hey Jen, wanna come to coffee? No. <laughs> Jen Wilkin notes that the repetition in the plagues are there so that people can remember and not forget. Okay, they were an oral culture, right? They didn't have the text written down like we do. And so they were retelling these plagues and retelling the faithfulness of God and retelling about Pharaoh and, and his unrepentance. But they had to do it in a way that would trigger their memory. And so there was like a cycle to help them remember. And why? What was the point? So that they could be like, oh, I know all the plagues. And like win like a play competition in Awanas? No. <laughs> the point was so that God can be remembered. It's the same point. So that he can be known and remembered. So it all comes back to that no matter what point we're at. So we're skipping over to chapter 7. Oh, sorry, I'm lying. No, I'm not lying. Please forgive me. We're skipping over to chapter 7, verse 1. Jen also notes that the plagues can be called a decreation account. So if you, and I'm not going to dive in deep to this. This is kind of like go die for a ring and come back up and then like we're done. So here's our ring, I'm like throwing it in the 10 foot. But the plagues are a decreation account in contrast to the creation account. So in creation, it's orderly. We build up to this full creation that worships God. In the decreation account, we're at this full creation that's like comfy, cozy. People are putting their hope in it. They're not worshiping God, and they're going to decreate it so that they might worship God. Okay, so it's an opposite funnel. So the decreation account, you may hear that, or you could dive in deeper. Let's jump in. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Remember the grace there. He sent them out two by two. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. I want us to note that they obey. Okay. There's going to be a stark difference between complete obedience and partial obedience as we walk through the plagues. So you're going to hear this a lot. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. So I don't want to hear anyone talking about you can't serve the Lord in retirement. Okay? So they are. They're killing it. So then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, we can circle that too. That's going to be in here a lot. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians, we're not talking like rabbits coming out of hats here, okay? Wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. 
also did the same by their secret arts. Three thanks. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. So this is the initial sign, right? It's kind of like, we just blew that. Like, no. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We're going to see this in the plagues, that the magicians copying the signs that God sent Aaron and Moses to do is tripping up Pharaoh. It's part of the hardening of his heart. His culture, his way of doing things, like, oh, I got that. We can do that. Okay, so let's see. As God mercifully deconstructs his culture, so that he can see Yahweh. So, pause for a minute. I'm going to be going back and forth to do some, some words here. The staff signifies for Moses and Aaron that God is the one working the signs through them on Israel's behalf and will continue to serve in this manner through the plagues. I want us to circle or highlight the staff to remember this point as we go through the plagues because it's important to remember who is doing the work. And who is doing the work? A covenant God is doing the work. So we've seen the staff in the initial sign, and that should remind us of that. When we see that the staff, Aaron's staff swallows up the other staff, it brings to mind that God's authority is greater than Pharaoh's authority. They did not have mastery or authority over Aaron's staff. So already from the beginning, even though Pharaoh's heart is hardened, we're seeing that God's authority is greater than Pharaoh's authority. Where else in scripture do you hear, like, I have authority? All authority has been given me. <laughs> right? The Great Commissions. I just want to read that real quick, if I can. Um, get through it without crying. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We so bad want marching orders like Aaron and Moses, right? Like they knew what they were supposed to do, but guys, we have them. The Great Commission is our marching orders. And let us not forget that God's authority is greater than any other authority. So no matter where we go in life, we're always to be making disciples. It can be within your home on those hard days with those little precious people. It can be across the world where you don't even know the language. But when you get a text or if you go across the world and you don't know the language, please put us in a group text. We have a dear friend who texts us before she goes to speak to people. And she says, please pray I would know the language. Please pray that I could speak the gospel. Please pray for an open door. Then we'll get another little text back. They're short. Oh, praise, God opened the door to talk to B today. That's it. So I'm like, thank you, Lord, for these examples to me that we have our marching orders and that your authority is greater, just like it was over Pharaoh. So let's read starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile. Interesting. To meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, why? That they may serve me, or another word, worship me, in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water, first plague, that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Jen notes, isn't it interesting here, that this is the exact spot where Moses should have died as a baby on the bank of the Nile where he was put in the basket. This is where Moses now stands to confront Pharaoh on behalf of Yahweh. Also at the end when it says, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone, this is grace to us. God is showing us, you know what, just in case the doubters among us want to say that it was by natural causes, all the water, even the water drawn out of the river that's in the homes, in the vessels, that's going to turn to blood. They're not from the same thing. So if the blood in the Nile, if the Nile turned to blood, how did this turn to blood if it was already drawn the day before? Right. So he's, again, mercifully, graciously revealing himself through all of this. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servant, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. This is heinous, guys. There's blood everywhere. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians, here they come again, of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So that's just blatant, like, whatever. Like he just turns. He doesn't even look at it. Then all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. They're thirsty. Their crops are going to die. There's no water. Guys, this is a largely agrarian society. We will get to that in a minute. This is a big deal. But here we also get a glimpse to see who's digging by the Nile. Is it Pharaoh? No, it's the Egyptians. Like they are suffering for his disobedience and now they are digging by the Nile trying to get water. Let's, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. No, please. Um, so is this affecting all the water in all of Egypt? So even the Israelites cannot drink? Or is this affecting just the water of the Egyptians? That's a great question. Do you happen to know? I do not know, but I'm going to say yes. Because okay. there comes a part in the plagues where the people are separated and you know that Israel is not affected, but that is not here. So okay. based on what the text is telling us, I'm going to say yes, because it says all. Okay. So that's how I transparently work through that. Okay. In, as we go through the plagues, I do want you to remember that God is overthrowing the little G gods of Egypt, right? They're a largely agricultural society. And what I didn't know that Jen Wilkin points out and honestly did not even read it in like four commentaries. I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm saying she has dug deep, guys. Like she is a student of 
the word and context, like her bookmark, she lives by it. Like she is doing this. And so I'm so thankful for her work because I learned so much from it. So um, Ra is a sun god and Pharaoh is actually representative. Like he represents Ra to the Egyptian people in their, you know, that decreation in how their culture operates. Okay. Ra is the main head dude. Okay. And so we're going to see little gods. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to mention several of them as we go through the plagues. Each plague is tearing down specific gods. Okay. So there's no water for crops. There's blood everywhere. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Again, worship me. This is the point. But if you refuse to let them go, right? Punishment for sin. Behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Second plague, frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. <laughs> the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians, love these guys, did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Like we needed more frogs, but now we have more frogs. So if we spend our time, I want to pause here because at this point, we're two plagues in. We're smart people. We're students of the word. We're in it. We're trying to fully understand a temptation might be to say, well, how? Like, how did all these frogs just, like, come? Like, how did that happen? How did the water and the now turn to blood? I kind of get why God put it in the vessels, because I was like, yeah, is that really blood? You know, like, we're not too far off from them, right? But Jen Wilkin, in her way that she teaches us to study the Bible, she says, ask and answer what the text wants us to ask, right? So the text... The text is not asking how here, all right? If we spend our time asking this, we will miss who. The text is asking who. Who did this, right? Yahweh did this. Why? So all of Egypt will know that he is the Lord. So let's keep our guardrails up. Let's not add to the text. Let's not question the text, but let's get in the text, okay? So I promised you I would tell you random weird names of gods that were being broken down. So here's one of them. Heket. She's a fertility god, a goddess, and she's represented by the frog. And you're not allowed to kill frogs in Egypt. Okay. So now we have a bazillion frogs that we're not allowed to kill and they represent dear Heket. Okay. So this is where we are. Let's see what we're going to do about this. I mean, just imagine it's like when you're driving in the rain and like they're hopping and you're like, I want to hit you, but like they're everywhere. Right. And you're like, Oh, I think I just squished like four of them, you know? And it's like, just look ahead, just keep your eyes somewhere else. But like they, that's just when it rains. Like we're talking frogs are in the bread, you know, like, <laughs> ugh. okay. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, why? 
oh, he might need help, huh? Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. This sounds good. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there's no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Much better place. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. Moses is a man of his word. We're going to see this over and over and over. He does what he says he will do. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Why? Because he knows Yahweh, who does what he says he will do. He's a promise keeper. The frogs died out in the houses. Oh, great. We think about this. The courtyards and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps. <laughs> and the land stank. All right. So we've gone from do not kill a frog to like we have a bazillion dead frogs and they're stinking. Like I would say that God was torn down. Right? Like, okay, we see this. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, right? Because he got help. The, the frogs were removed. They're no longer in his bread bowl. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And also, once again, who's cleaning up the dead frogs? Pharaoh? No, the Egyptians who suffered from his disobedience. So moving on. Plague number three. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All of the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So here we are at the end of our first cycle. And at the end of it, we see where the magicians come up short. Okay? So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Remember, these are learned scholars. So they are starting to recognize Yahweh here. But Pharaoh still is not. The God, Geb, the God of earth, when it says he struck the dust of the earth, that is the God that's being torn down here. Geb, the God of earth. Sorry, just one minute. Missing a paper. No, okay. So the magicians up until this point were able to replicate Aaron's signs, right? But never to overthrow them. The initial sign they couldn't overthrow. They couldn't reverse the effects of the blood in the Nile and the frogs. And now they're unable to even produce the gnats. And so they are recognizing it, right? They've been humbled. They are seeing Yahweh. Egyptians may be seeing that the God who sent Moses and Aaron has shown that he has power over Egypt and that Pharaoh's persistent defiance is harming his own people. We see that and how they have to clean up. Fourth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. So we're in the second cycle. And present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or worship me. Or else, right, he's the God who punishes sin. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms 
of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. God separates here the Hebrews from the Egyptians. Okay, listen up. But on, the, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Still, same thing. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this night, excuse me, shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies, which is ironic because Jen teaches us here that Kepri is the god of creation and birth, and he is a fly god. That's what his, he's known as. And so now he's the god of creation and birth, but yet all the land creation was ruined by these swarms of flies. So his power has been brought down. Then... Who, okay, who has been performing the signs up until now? Look at your chart. So who is the agent in one through three? Yes. All right, the agent in four is who? God. Okay, this is the first time where we see the people split apart. God's people are distinct. The purpose of this plague is like any other, that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. It's changing a little bit. The Lord states repeatedly that the plagues have the purpose that the Pharaoh and Egyptians would know who he is. Both translation options for this phrase focus on the identity and presence of Yahweh, who is at work on behalf of his people. And now we see it here. God is the agent. He's at work on behalf of his people. He has protected them from the flies. Land of Goshen. That is originally the land that was given to Jacob by the Pharaoh who had known and honored Joseph. Okay? Originally given to Jacob and his family by the Pharaoh who had known and honored Joseph. So it's tied in to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's go back to verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. So he's letting them go, right? But he says, within the land. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Remember here, they worship livestock. The Hebrews sacrifice it, okay? And so Pharaoh's like, just go a little ways out, not too far, and go ahead and sacrifice. It's fine. But they are obedient. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. He's asking them for partial obedience. That's not their game. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. They like tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again, so he's kind of calling him out, by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. All right? That's similar to the frogs, right? 
he got respite from the frogs and he acted like he was gonna change his mind and then he didn't. So remember the cycle of the plagues. Number two was the frog. Number two in this cycle is the, where are we at? Flies, is that what we're talking about? Just lost my place. Yes, and so he does not, He's yes, flies. He is in the same cycle. So moving on to nine, the fifth plague, I promise it speeds up. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. That's a new little part. That's a very cool part. Let my people go that they may serve me or worship me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. He's being very clear here. He's like, I'm the God who punishes sin. Let me say it a little longer, right? The livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel, again, separating, and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. (laughs) All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So he was kind of checking up to make sure this was true. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Moving on. And the Lord said to Moses, the sixth plague, and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air. So who's the agent now? Moses. Moses. He's maturing into his role. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. Wait a minute. I thought all the beasts just died. Isn't that what they just said? All the livestock of Egypt died? Well, Jen pulls out here that this is a hyperbolic statement. It's like if we, she says, it's like if we went to eat and then like some of us got food poisoning, we'd be like, oh my gosh. We went to that restaurant over there and we all got food poisoning. Like, did everyone in the restaurant get it? No, it's just like how we talk. And so she, it did not literally mean that there were no livestock left of the Egyptians. It's just like a hyperbolic statement. It's a literary device. So it reminds us, the reason I wanted to pull that out is that we don't read the text literally. We read it, that's what we're learning to be women of the word. We read it literarily. That's not a word. I just made it up. Okay, so breaking out. So there are beasts and now they have sores. Okay, throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. I want to pause right here. Remember when we said the phrase, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews in the fifth plague. This is really important. So bear with me as I read this to you. Moses, God instructs Moses to refer to him as the God of the Hebrews. And Pharaoh should have begun to see that Yahweh's identification with Israel indicated his favor on them but did not mean that his power was limited to only them. The Bible study note from Harris is really good on 318. This is where we first hear him say, the God of the Hebrews. 
To someone as powerful as the king of Egypt, Moses making a request in the name of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, would look ridiculous. What God would choose to be identified with a nation of slaves and then also presume to make a request from the king of the nation that has enslaved them? Given all the other equally true things that God could have told Moses to say to designate him, like the Lord, the God who has created the heavens and the earth, he is evidently making the point to both Egypt and Israel that he has chosen to identify with the people of his covenant even when they appear to have little value in the eyes of the nation they serve except as forced labor. This is huge because that's the gospel. We don't have value. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the God who we serve. He knows us. He's inclined towards us. He identifies with the lowly. So I thought that was worth noting. All right, moving on, I promise there's only one more chapter in my section, guys. So we were at, let's see. Okay, the magicians, they can't stand, right? So now the plagues are more personal and invasive. They can't escape the physical harm at this point, right? They're honing in the cycles, gen... I don't really want to talk about this a lot because like PTSD, but she reminds, she says it's like birth pains. Okay. So it's like, you know, when you're one to three centimeters dilated, you're just like, oh, I'm about to have a baby. This is awesome. You're like at the doctor, like, please tell me I'm dilated. And then like from four to six, you're like, okay, I think we're having a baby today. We might need to go to the hospital. Right. We're in that section. Right. We're like ending that part. So we doesn't go very well from here on out. We got to burst this thing. Okay. So it's going to get rough. All right. Lord help me. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egi- magicians and upon all the Egyptians. <laughs> Lots of shuns. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. This is also like with the gnats, right, and the magicians. Mm-hmm. But um, And he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken to Moses. So now we're entering into cycle three. This is transition part of labor that should never be spoken of again. <laughs> and so it's rough. So let's see. This is when the work gets hard, the labor gets hard. This is when... All the pain is for a purpose, right? But the pain is going to intensify here. Why? Because the Lord wants them to know Yahweh, but they're not repenting. They're not humbling themselves. It's going to get hard. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, right? Punishment, death, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm just two minutes over. I'm going to take a tiny break to turn to Isaiah 63, 12. All right, we're entering into the seventh plague. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah 63, 12. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? 
Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The Bible study note here, it's not Harris, it's now Ortland. Like everyone with last name Ortland must be like really cool Christians. But God displayed his beauty in the history of Israel. Isaiah has, has hope for the future, but not because present appearances favor it, but because God must be glorified. And that is our same hope. So when we are in circumstances that don't look favorable and don't look like we have hope, our hope is in the fact that we know that our God will be glorified. He has shown us his glory and he will be glorified in our lives. That will happen. He is the God who keeps his promises. The staff, he is the one who does it, right? All right. But for this purpose, I raised you up. We read that part. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time, when tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt, minus in some, yesterday, from the day it was founded until now. Okay, worst ever, right? That's what he's saying. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. All right, this is cool. He's like giving them a chance to show their faith. Like, okay, you got a minute. Like, whoever believes me, go and do what I've said. And that's exactly what happens. Then whoever feared the Lord, the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So now we see some servants are believing and acting right upon this warning. Alyssa told us about that last night. You see, you believe, you worship, you act, okay? This is happening to some of these Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, sorry guys, it's my crazy note system. Okay, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hell in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Think, destroying everything. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran, ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a great nation. Became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And we're talking hail is striking down beast like this is a big <laughs> deal like griffin's been out on the hail before and he's fine you know like i just bring him in i'm like sorry buddy i didn't remember that you were out there you know but these beasts are like they're falling over this is like a like softball who knows this big who knows and the hail struck down every plant of the field remember they're an agrarian society their livestock is going their plants are growing and broke every tree of the field only in the land of where Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. 
All right, sounds good, but it's really not this time. Like for real? <laughs> this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. Oh, really? The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, meaning it had come up, this crop. Mm -hmm. And the flax was in the bud, right? About to bloom. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out from the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Why? Because he was hoping in the late crops. It's like if God got his attention, he's like, oh, I'm still just going to go back to what I hope in. All right. There was still some crops out there. They weren't up yet. They were not destroyed because they weren't out. All right. Seraphia is the God who protects from the locusts. Come with me into the locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the heart of his servant, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, this is the first time we've heard of future generations, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know what? That I am the Lord, Yahweh. So here comes a warning. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? All right, this is getting real. This is specific. This is like confronting. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. That's disgusting. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. All right. So he calls them out. You're, you're, you're hoping in that late crop. Well, guess what? They're going to eat it. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. All right. We see the, the mention of future generations here. Why? Because Yahweh is a future God. Remember Jen telling us that. That you may... Tell in the hearing of your son and grandson that you may know that I am Yahweh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So here we are seeing also that his servants are kind of calling out that Egypt is ruined, right? And we're going to see that like the magicians in 819, some of Pharaoh's servants recognize what the plague signify. And they make the bold move to suggest strongly to Pharaoh that he is not acting on behalf of his people as a leader should. All right? So let's keep reading. Plow on through. Stay with me. Take a sip of coffee. We're almost there. Remember, we're in the intense part. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Oh, I'm sorry. This is not my section. This is where we skip to our new part. <laughs> sorry. That's why I was like, this doesn't sound familiar. Okay. If you have it, good. I don't have it, so I'm going to read in the part I passed out. 
All right, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses, the locusts, and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man, this is the part I was telling you about, be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. He's still just doubting, not believing. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So he did not grant them what they asked. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. So the wind brought the swarms. Locusts came up all over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land. This is the worst ever, God. So the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained. He is deconstructing their idols. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. They are desperate, guys. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, like he's getting desperate, right? he's getting panicky. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. There he goes again. <laughs> and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Praise God. So merciful. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. I had more to say. I'll do it very quickly here. But this is hits personal for me because when I first came to know the Lord, I was grieved by the consequences of my sin, not the fact that I was sinning against Yahweh. And so as I grew in the Lord and I was discipled and I saw him more for who he was, I did not want to sin against him. I agreed with him. Oh, what you say is sin is bad. That is hurting me. I've been deceived. I now see. Mm -hmm. And so that is where Pharaoh is stuck. He's like, I just don't like the consequence of this sin, but I don't really have anything to do with Yahweh. Like, I don't care that I'm sinning against Yahweh. I just don't want to be affected by this death, right? Remove the death from me, is what he's asking. It's very merciful of God to tear down idols. It's not pretty. This last stage of birth pains is awful and intense, but we have to remember it's not from a harsh, heavy hand that is like delighting to punish sin. It's a God who keeps his promises, punishes sin because he's a holy God. 
and because he's merciful, because he wants the people to see him so that they can be saved and worship him. All right. My, my sports in college was my idol and God tore it down. I got several injuries. I got injuries leading up to those that led me out of gymnastics to track. And then I made an idol out of track. And then I walked on in college, like walk on is just like, you know, walk on. I didn't get a scholarship. It was like me still pining after it. And so I walk on and I'm like two years into college and it takes a lot of time. Like you get up at 5 a.m. and you work out and you do crazy things that like you're like, I'm supposed to do this. I think that's what football players do. You know, like it's weird. And we worked out all the time. Work out in the afternoon. Go on trips to what end? Like I barely jumped. Like sometimes I would be in the lineup. Sometimes I wouldn't be. And the Lord started to stir in my heart. Like, which way are you going to go? Like, are you going to worship yourself? And the idol of sports just to get your name like third place maybe or are you going to come worship me and put in deposits for eternity that are unto salvation for others and so i chose to quit the team and i got really involved in my local church and my campus ministry crew had a lot to do with that um but maybe an idol that we can relate to now maybe it's not sports it's not sports now is maybe money, intellect, control, relationships. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to your heart, but let's not miss that we can relate. So the final plague, the ninth plague, all right? So here we're going to meet Ra again, the chief god of this system they have of all these little gods of Hekek and Geb and all these people, he is the chief god Ra, he's the sun god, okay? Pharaoh embodies him. Pharaoh is his representative, all right? If their cosmos or whatever is chaotic, it falls on Pharaoh, right? He's in trouble. The sun comes up, and that's when Ra is said to have defeated the serpent of darkness, okay? So every day when the sun goes down, the serpent of darkness comes out. Ra wrestles with him all night. The sun comes up in the morning. That means Ra won. That means Pharaoh's doing a good job. All is in order, okay? So let's see what happens. The ninth plague, darkness. This is like almost to delivering the baby. Emily gets to deliver the baby. I'm stuck in transition. This is no, okay. Sig- was recently did. Yes. It might be a little too soon. Okay. Significant immediate effects and what it represents here is that it immobilized the Egyptians for three days from any normal pattern of living. So let's dig in and see what happened to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. This means no light. This is not like walking in your bedroom and like hitting your cell phone and you have a little bit of that ambiance, you know, where you're like, where is that? Let me not trip. This is like no darkness. Like you can't see your own hand in front of you. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. How symbolic. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. He's like, fine, take them, right? He didn't want them to go last time. He's like, only the men. Now he's like, take them. Only let your flocks and your herds remain. Really? Okay. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices. Let me get to my right thing. And burnt offerings 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, right? Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there, right? His faith is not by sight. He is obeying him. He's like, we were told to go a three days journey and to sacrifice and worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will never see your face again. All right. We, let me put all my scripture back here and wrap this up for you. Um, so this was the worst thing for Pharaoh, right? Because Pharaoh looked defeated. Like, he's the representative of Ra. The sun never came up for three days. That was the last straw for him. All of his small G gods have been crushed in the sight of his people. So he's nothing in front of them. The idols were torn down completely. Why? Because God is the God who keeps his promises and punishes his sin. Jen made a really good note that God will disorder what we have ordered to bring glory to ourselves every single day time. It is a mercy to us. This ending is kind of abrupt right here at the ninth plague, but don't worry, Emily's going to take us on through, and it's going to be great. Um, We don't hear about Pharaoh's heart. We just see that he's like, go away from me. There's three references to his face. There is in 10.5 that the locust shall cover the face of the land. 10.15 that the locust covered the face of the whole land, and that at the end that we will never see Pharaoh's face again. So it seems to be a stark warning of the final plague that's coming. That is the plague of death. So God is so patient. Let's remember this as we end. God is so patient to show himself by tearing down Egypt's idols. God is willing for the Egyptians to repent. Nine opportunities were given to them to see Yahweh versus Pharaoh, including Pharaoh. He contrasted himself against Pharaoh so that both may know, the Egyptians and the Israelites, who Yahweh is. Jen left us with this very convicting point that I wanted to share. God's chosen people endure suffering alongside those who are being brought to repentance. That's what Israel did here. You may know someone in rebellion against God and there is collateral damage to you because of their destructive behaviors. This has happened in my life, guys. This hits home. You want to break the relationship. It's frustrating. You want to avoid it. You want to reprimand that person at every turn. But we are to be patient in affliction, right? I'm going to read Romans 12, 12 to end us out. Rejoice in hope. Yahweh is the one who keeps his promises. Be patient in tribulation, right? He will punish sin. And be constant in prayer for those who have not yet repented because he wants everyone to repent and know him. And that is our call, the Great Commission. Your patience in affliction might just result, as Jen reminds us, in someone else's salvation. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his word and move on to our next thing.